Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are going to be reading, continuing uh, Peter talking to the church in verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. This is God's word to us this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abram and calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, take these next few minutes and cause my words to declare the realities before us in this passage, to cut through our experiences and what the culture says and what we know. Cause us to be able to taste and see that which only the Holy Spirit can illuminate for us, and that is the realities of service and entrusting ourselves to you in this world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, a woman named Helen Rosevere. She is actually passed away now. Maybe some of you have heard of her. She was born in 1925, and she passed away in 2016. Helen was uh, born in England, and at some time early in her 20s, she felt a calling towards missions. And she's uh, been, recorded a lot of this through biographies and through, through talks. She said, um, I'll go anywhere God wants me to go, at whatever the cost. you got to be careful of what you say. God hears our prayers. After graduating from Cambridge, she went on to Holland to take a a course in uh, tropical medicine as she prepared for an appointment to be a medical missionary in the Congo. In 1953, at the age of 28, she arrived in the northeastern region of the Congo. 
In the first two years that we, she was there, she founded a training school for nurses, and she trained nurses not only to care for the people, but also evangelize the people. And her work was fruitful, and different outreaches and posts were set up uh, because of her. Unfortunately, the Congo, well, not unfortunately, but just circumstantially, the Congo became independent from Belgium in 1960, and civil war broke out in 1964. All of the medical facilities that they had established were destroyed. Helen was among the uh, 10 Protestant missionaries that were put under house arrest by rebel forces. She described the horror of what happened after she tried to escape. Just for clarity, this is from um, something that Justin Taylor wrote online. I'm just reading the, the points. They found me, Helen said, dragged me to my feet, struck me over my head and shoulders. They flung me on the ground. They kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood. My glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven and dragged and pushed back to my house, yelled at, insulted, and cursed." Her captors, she wrote, were brutal and drunken. They cursed and they swore. They struck and they kicked. They used the butt end of their rifles uh, in the rubber trenches to beat them. They were roughly taken. They were thrown in prisons. They were humiliated and they were threatened. And on October 29th, 1964, Helen Rosevere was brutally abused by the men in the army. And I think you understand what that means. About that account, she later says, On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, utterly alone, I felt at last that God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things did not have to go that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. She says later, in this darkness, however, she sensed the Lord saying to her, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings, they're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She eventually received an overwhelming sense of privilege that the Almighty God would stoop to ask her, a mere nobody in the forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. This theme of privilege is something that became prominent in her ministry after that point. She would go around and speaking in these conferences, and um, she uh, said this in one of the conferences. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or the humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him. It was for him. It was in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some way a little edge of the fellowship of his suffering. Helen's suffering and her entrusting herself to God exalted the name of God. One of the most uh, influential figures in my own Christian walk is a pastor whose testimony goes like this. He was an extremely gifted artist even as a young man. Uh, on the path of being able to be one of the next great artists in America. And a friend invited him to this Urbana conference of which some of the biggest heavy hitters of the time were, were preaching. 
Billy Graham was there. Others were there that everybody knew their names, and, and this man was unfazed. But Helen Rosevere got up and recounted in even greater detail this story to her. It was so moving, her sacrifice, her exaltation of God, that it caused him to cast off his plans for a future as a prominent painting figure in America to give his life to service to Christ Jesus. That is what this text is about. It's about the fruit and the blessing and the encouragement that comes through suffering. This is uh, not a text about marriage. It's not a text about workers and their bosses. This is a text about something deeper that both slaves and wives point to. It's about glorifying and exalting God by our patient enduring of unjust suffering. Verse 15, when Peter is talking to the church, he says this to them. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. There is a call on our lives to walk and live and endure in such a way that it shuts the mouths of unbelievers. It declares to them that we know something, that we believe in something, that we are led by someone who is far greater than anything you can do for me. It is summed up in that scripture that Jesus said, do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him. There's something greater out there, him who can kill both the body and the soul. When the world will see how Christians suffer in the face of injustice, how we don't lose hope, how we continue to entrust ourselves to God and follow Jesus, that testifies to the glory of God and the power that he avails to us. This is not a, uh, a, a new concept. We see this in Scripture, this idea. At the end of Jesus's, uh, end of Mark, when Mark is recounting Jesus being crucified, and Jesus breathes his last breath, Mark says, and what does it say the centurion, the guard who helped hang him on the tree? What does it say he did? When the centurion, who was a Gentile, a hater of God, who had nothing to do with it, was just on duty, saw the way that Jesus died and breathed his last. Christ died in such a way, he held himself in such a way, his hope was in such a way that the centurion said, truly this must be the Son of God. In Peter, we see that God has redeemed a people. He's caused us to be born again through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 declares that you and I, if you are in Christ Jesus, this church, you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen nation. You're God's own possession. We are something different than what we once were. We are something new. And as priests, what do priests do? They serve. And how does this say that we serve? We don't sacrifice goats. We don't sacrifice bulls. We don't go around sprinkling blood. It declares to us what we are to do as a people, how we are to serve. Verse 9, it says, You are chosen people to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's our call. That's, that's our, our mandate for us as the new body. Another pastor said it, uh, illustrated it beautifully like this. Imagine this huge mind that goes miles down into the earth and it's dark. 
and we are all down there at the bottomless pit of this mind just clinging on to the walls for dear life. No chance of escaping of our own. But a Savior has come down into that pit and has grabbed a hold of us and brought us out of the pit, out of the darkness, into the light, into the life. And we go back to that pit and we crawl down into that pit or we call down into that pit, grab onto the Savior. He is yours. Reach for him. He will rescue you. He'll bring you out of darkness. That is what we are to do. We are to declare to the world him, Jesus Christ, whom God sent to save us from our sins. And this is how we declare it. We declare it by word and by deed. And that's what this text is about. It's about the deed part. Sometimes you don't have a word in it, but sometimes your lives can speak volumes. That doesn't mean it's opposite of the word. The word must be present, the word and spirit. But sometimes they won't listen to our words until they see our deeds. Sometimes our deeds give life to the word that we proclaim. And that is what we see here. Jesus even says it. He says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, very interesting in here, he's going to say, he's teaching us that by our deeds, we can declare the excellencies of God. And what he's going to do, as I said earlier, he's not giving us a, uh, here's 10 lessons, biblical lessons about uh, being a worker. Or here's how to have a great marriage. He's using actual groups in society, the lowest rungs of society in the Roman first century, slaves and not much higher than them, wives, to show how by our works we can declare the excellencies of God. Now, this is a, a, a difficult passage, just straight up difficult, because what God calls these people to do and to endure, it, it, it just doesn't fly in our culture and in our minds. It doesn't fit with what, what we know about God or what we might think we know about God. It might seem very contrary but God is, is, is not saying this is how we all are to be, all are going to be. He, he's more so showing us the most extreme examples. But they're not just examples. They're not just an illustration like the cave. These were real people that 2,000 years ago heard this and were called to obey this. So I want to first look at the reality of both slaves and wives in their context. Because here's a problem that we can do when we come to Scripture. We can so quickly want to apply it to ourselves. And if we take this passage and say, well, this, this, what I can take from this is how I handle my boss, my jerk boss. Or how do I handle my couch potato husband? That's not what the... And we, we miss the point. We miss the weight. So looking at this, looking at the reality. Slavery. Um, it was awful. First century slavery is awful. A common idea that uh, we often hear is that it wasn't like American, African-American slavery that we did. It wasn't that abusive. Some people had good roles. They, they had, were architects. They were engineers. Uh, they were entrusted with uh, different higher standards. Um, it wasn't the same. 
I'll get that. It wasn't the same in some ways, but it was very much the same in many other ways. It wasn't the same uh, in some ways because with African-American slavery, it was one race. It was black people. In this, it didn't matter what color you were, what race you were. Slaves were brought in usually by conquering countries. If you went and conquered the Egyptians, well, guess what you have on your hands? Egyptian slaves. If you went and conquered the Turkish, guess what you have? You have Turkish slaves. You had men, women, all different. It was different in the, in the fact that you couldn't identify everybody who was a slave by their skin color. Actually, the slaves wore very kind of the same garments as very poor people. Their masters were legally commanded to give them every two years a new robe and new shoes. And they actually thought in, in Rome, they thought, we're going to make all the slaves wear the same uniform so that we can identify them. But somebody said, hey, that's a bad idea. Because when we do, one out of every five people in the Roman um, Empire were slaves. They're going to see how powerful they are. So let's not do that. But the similarity was, you were not your own. That's why this doesn't work out between workers and their bosses. They can't quit. They can't go home when they don't want to. They can't say no. Some of them were commanded to do awful things. Some of them were the executioners. Imagine being commanded as your job to carry a hatchet and cut somebody's head off. It's not the same. These people live very difficult lives. Before the age of 30, you were not allowed to even buy your freedom. It was very difficult to buy your freedom. Yes, some people were in offices and some people had higher up, higher up positions. Some of the women got to work with the, the, the upper echelon ladies. But many were, of the women were abused regularly, repeatedly for their entire life. And their daughters were brought up in that. Many were worked the uneducated in the mines, and they were worked till they died. If they tried to run away, they would shackle them. They would take a, uh, they would engrave on them. They would burn them, or they would kill them. You were property. Slaves were property. They weren't people. They were owned. They could be sold. They could be gifted. They were not their own. So slavery, this is, this is who Peter is talking to. He's talking to these people that, yes, some of them had it okay, but most of them had terrible lives. Some of them were forced to be gladiators, fighting to the death. There was a, uh, a play in the second century that records a actual, has a line in it that records an actual slave from the first century that it says this. It says, stripes, that's getting whipped, stripes, fetters. I think fetters is uh, like the balls on the, on the whips that can rip your flesh. The mill, weariness, hunger, bitter cold, fine pay for idleness, says the slave. If you were just being idle, you weren't producing. Your employer couldn't just dock your pay. He whooped you. And this guy says, that's what I am really afraid of. He says, then it's better to be good than bad. He says, I don't mind a tongue lashing, but I hate the real floggings. These are men and women, boys and girls in the congregation that are living horrible lives that Peter is saying, servants, be subject to your masters. Be subject to your masters. Submit to them. Now, question you might have, how did they go to church? 
you know, if they, if they were such slaves and, and life was so hard, uh, you got to remember their slavery was different than ours. It was so societal. It was so ingrained. They didn't even have context of a society without slavery. It would have almost been better if all slavery was always in chains because then if you broke the chains, at least you could get free. But the slaves lived separately than uh, the non-slaves, than the citizens of the city. They ate in separate places. They lived in separate places. But they could never escape their slavery. They were born a slave. They were going to die a slave. If they ran away, they were going to be found a slave and treated in the same way. So slavery was just something that was there, but they could go to worship. Everybody worshiped there. Everybody worshiped something. Some people worshiped rocks. Some people worshiped the gods of the the skies or the, the pyramids. And they heard, they went to the church and they heard the message. It was almost scandalous that Peter even addressed slaves at all. And here's the reality, moving on to the wives. The same thing can be said about the wives. Wives in this first century, their movement was extremely limited about what they could do. Their their movement was very limited, and they were always under the hand of a man and authority. It went from their father to their husband. And then even if they ended up having a son and their father passed away, they were always under the guidance of a male. In society, society thought that they were not smart, that they were incapable of taking care of business, so they could not hold office, they could not vote. Even in the games, you know, the Coliseum, they had to sit in the upper nosebleed rows. Even the males that were uh, slaves could sit lower than them. They were, had one purpose, and that was to marry, to remain pure, to marry, and to give birth to children, and to raise their children. And it, what, their marriage wasn't a loving relationship like we have now. The husbands in that society often would have their wives that gave birth to the children and raised the children, but they would have lovers on the side. And so there wasn't this intimate relationship between the two. Women, some women did prosper. Some women had enjoyable, fulfilling lives. But the overall sense was that for a woman, in many ways, she was like the slave, where the slave always had a master over them. The woman always had a man over them. And as the way... For the slave, however your master was, so went your life. The way for the woman, whatever your husband was like, so went your life. And it's very interesting that in God's providence, both the, in these environments and in these challenges, in God's providence, both the men or both the women and the slaves could freely worship and attend the service of God. Isn't that unique? They could hear the word of God. And Peter could speak to them. So that is the reality. These people are in difficult situations. Some of the wives, they would come and they would uh, present their new faith to their husband who he wasn't having it. And there wasn't the option to run away. Divorce existed in that time, but it was rare that a wife could get a divorce. It was up to the man. So we have to understand, here's what's hard in in this situation is, is, is that it's a very different and difficult context so that's the reality let's talk about moving on what does God say then to these slaves that are in this awful situation verse 18 he says servants be subject to your masters with all respect 
subject. We've seen this from last week. To be subject means to recognize God's authority that's in place and to submit yourself in obedience to them, not with just words, but from heart, from the heart stand. It's your posture. So Peter's telling these slaves who are in awful situations, the majority of them, to submit willingly to their masters. And he goes on, he says, not only to the just and the gentle, but to the unjust, to the one that is cruel and evil, to the one that beats you, to the one that sold your wife away and your children away, the one that withholds your rations, to the one that ridicules you, that's why this is, this is awkward because this is the reality that he, he's saying. God is saying in this situation. What you don't see is you don't see him say, leave. There's a biblical witness. There's a biblical witness that we are where God has us. We are in the circumstance and time that God has determined, whether that's good or bad. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, Enjoy the lot that the Lord has given you in the toil that you toil under the sun. For this is what God has given you. This is your lot. What is it? How many kids do you have? Do you have kids? No kids? Are you tall? Are you white? Are you black? Are you a woman? Are you a man? This is your lot. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, when Paul goes to Athens and he's, and he's preaching to them, he's saying, God, there is a God, and he's determined the time and the places and the boundaries in which man lives, which individuals live. And get this, just to make this real clear, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking to slaves who have been converted, says this to them, anyone born a bondservant? Don't worry about that. He doesn't say run. Now, there is great wisdom that needs to be, just like we were talking to the gov- about the government last week, great wisdom when it comes to this situation and great wisdom when it comes to the wives about there are exceptions. There are exceptions. The point is here, there was an option of exception. There wasn't an option for the slaves to run away. There wasn't an exception for the wives to run away. They would be killed and beaten. Now, we don't live in that context. He's, he's pointing out the drasticness that we should see here. And I'm not saying to any, anybody that is being trafficked or any, and later on any wife that is in a difficult time. We, thank God, live in an environment where you can run, where injustice can be solved, where as a church, we are not saying stay in an abusive relationship. Seek your elders. Seek the wisdom. Seek authorities if necessary. We are calling you to that. There is no way that God is saying this, uh, saying that you must stay in it, and that is what is Christian. But he is saying in life, not all of everybody is American like us. You will not always have the choice. And he's speaking to those people. So we got to carry that weight. It's very difficult. He goes on to say that it is a gracious, in verse 9, that it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. It is a pleasing thing to God. Listen, in that congregation, Peter is looking at these slaves that don't know if they're going to make it till next week. 
And Peter is saying, you feel like you have no voice. You have been brought in. We've told you about Christ Jesus dying for your sins. We, we, you know that you're a holy nation. You're part of a new group. And you think you don't have a voice. You don't have a, a spot in this world. You have nothing. You're at the lowest pedestal of all society. And, and, and Peter is saying, you have a voice. You have a way to please God by enduring what you've been put in. By looking to Christ, he says, it is a gracious thing when you're mindful of God. The only way you and I can endure, the only way that these slaves could endure is if they are mindful of God and they understand the larger picture. If you go throughout your life thinking God wants no harm done in your life, that if harm is in your life, there's something wrong, you're going to struggle. But if you are mindful of God, like Helen Roosevelt was in the beginning, that us sharing in sufferings, unjust sufferings, it doesn't please God. The, the, the suffering doesn't please God. The enduring it with the hope of God and his son is what pleases him. The entrusting yourself to him pleases him. He says, what, does it, what credit is it to you when you sin and you're beaten for it? There's no, he uses the word credit. What blessing, what benefit is it? Verse 21, for to this you have been called. Isn't this crazy? Are you going to buy a Christian coffee mug that says, for to this you have been called? And what is he calling them to? Not to suffer, but to endure the suffering looking for Christ. And he uses the example of Christ Jesus. This is where God, God turns everything on its head, saints. The world is not, Scripture is very clear. Do not focus on things that are seen, but things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. There's so many things in your life that we focus on, that, that, that I focus on in my life, that we should not be focused on. That these aren't the valuable things. We are all passing as sojourners and exiles through this world. The Lord turns it upside down, and Helen Roosevelt says it was a privilege that I suffered with Christ. She's only not coming up with something new. She's, she's saying what Paul says. I pray that I may share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter and John, when they preached the gospel and they were beaten for it, they rejoiced because they were considered worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. He turns it upside down. And he says, this is a gracious thing that you endure. So just to recap with the slaves, you have slaves that are in the congregation, going through hardship, suffering great injustice that might end in actually their death. And the way that they can continue to be a holy nation and to live that out, the way that they can live this out and glorify God and share in his sufferings and have his pleasure upon them is by enduring, looking on past the suffering to God, entrusting themselves to it. And how do they do this? He, P Peter doesn't just say, hey, go do. He doesn't lay the law upon them and just say, this is up to you. Remember, they already are a holy nation. They already are God's chosen possession because of Christ Jesus through faith. But he says, I have more for you than just you being saved unto eternal life. I actually want you to enjoy, enjoy serving God. He says, Christ is an example and he uses Christ's earthly ministry. He says Christ is an example. He committed no sin. He was perfectly just. 
No deceit was in his mouth, meaning he was, no reason he should ever suffer. And Peter says, but he was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. He was suffered, but he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't return that suffering. He did not threaten in return. But it says right here, and this is what you need to circle in your Bible and your bulletin. He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. We are called to shut the mouths of unbelievers in this world by doing good. What does in doing good look like? Entrusting ourselves to God. Not opening our mouth. Not threatening back. Saints, that is so, so hard. Even on a minute level. I can't imagine for these slaves and these wives. Uh, This week I had a, a catering job on Wednesday and it was for a commander of a destroyer in the U.S. Navy that was uh, changing command. And I had called and I talked to one of his subordinates who had organized the catering job. And I said, I need to be there two hours early because it was a, a big setup job. And I'm feeding 60, 70 of these people. And, and when I do it, I have to come and bring a whole restaurant and build a restaurant and then serve it. So I need some time to set up. I said, I need two hours. And he says, that's fine. He says, I'll call the captain and let him know. Well, I get this call back, and he says, you know, um, I just talked to the captain, and honestly, the captain said, what in the world could take somebody two hours? Why does somebody need two hours to set up? Are you kidding me? Do you want your hot dogs or not? (laughs) I was so frustrated. I was so frustrated. Who are you to question me that the time that I need? Who are you? This is small. You know what? I could do it in the time that he gave me, and I did it in the time. But who are you to question me? And Jesus was reviled, perfect, without sin. He's the creator of these people. He's the sustainer of these people. And yet he was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. It's not easy. And so Jesus gives us the example, but here's the good news. He also gives us the power. Without him, we would have no hope of being able to do this, even an inkling. And, and, and saints, we are called to do this with the rest of our lives, and we're going to fail. But sometimes you're going to succeed. And here's why you'll succeed. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died for us and caused us to be born again. He imparts his spirit inside of us that causes us to walk in newness of life. He causes Helen Roosevelt to come to her end, to despair. And then he restores her and lifts her on wings like eagles and reminds her that I am with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And he turns her mind to the mind of God that she may endure the suffering and actually, in a sense, rejoice that the suffering unites her to God. As a work of God and by the Spirit that is available to us through faith in Christ Jesus as we journey on this path with him. Well, moving on to the wives. It says in verse 1, chapter 3, likewise wives. What is the likewise here? The likewise is you're going to suffer. Life is hard. You're going to feel out of control. You're going to be treated unjustly. But likewise, you are called to endure. You are called to glorify God by your patient enduring and trusting yourself 
to God. The situation here is that these wives do not have believing husbands. That's the situation. He says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. This is difficult situations. And not just that they don't believe, but they might be brutal. They might be mean. They might be difficult. And what Peter says is, listen, you're not without hope. You're not without tools. The tools just are very different. You can't demand your way. You can't manipulate your way. You can't control your way. What you're going to do is that you may win him by your conduct. By your conduct, you may win him. And that's Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to the Father. Our obedience and entrusting ourselves to God both shuts the mouths of unbelievers what in the world are they doing? Who, who are they? And it also causes some to say, who in the world are they looking to? I want that. And it's not a guarantee. None of this is a guarantee. And God doesn't say it pleases him that you win your, wife, your husband. He says it pleases him that you entrust yourself to God and you endure. Very different situation and that is because we are after something different we're after conquering hearts for christ conquering hearts for christ and that happens through the testimony of christ and that by a a wife's submission and her obedience to him god works through that at times and if he doesn't work in the husband through that He's always working in the wife, and he's sanctifying her. And he's, it's a pleasing thing. He goes on to say that uh, this is a, uh, look, at, look at verse 4. It says, um, don't let your adoring be with, with jewelry and such, but let it be with the person, uh, imperishable beauty and the gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is a, a secret that we all need to realize in the reality that the world might not see your enduring. The world might not know your suffering. But what does the text say? It says God sees it. In the sight of God, it is pleasing. He sees it and he knows it and he's honored by it. And it talks about in, um, that Sarah called This is a pattern that we see in Scripture. Sarah called her husband Lord. What does that mean? There's only one text in all of the Scripture that Sarah says Lord, and it's just kind of a, as one pastor said, a a flyby Lord. When God says that, hey, you're going to have a a child through Abraham, she says, my Lord is so old, he's basically dead. And she says it just in passing. It's not like, oh, my Lord. But what this pastor says and what I think he really says is her posture towards her husband was that of respect. If you found her on a normal day and just caught her uh, in her attitude towards her husband, it'd be one towards one of respect, whether he deserved it or not. Because all of this is in the sight of God. The slave's master is God. The wife's master and true husband is Christ. And all this is unto them. 
he does give a note to the husbands. And it does say likewise. It says likewise endure. It says, what is that enduring? That's uh, likewise endure. Life is going to be hard. It's going to be unjust. And so a man ought to follow this. And I think Peter really just threw this in there because he says, Christian men, society says you have the ability to control and manipulate and empower your wives, but you are from another world. You are a citizen of a different world. You will act differently. And it says to us husbands, both then and now, you're under the eye of God. You better watch out because it even says, um, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Before I get to that next point, live in an understanding way. Back then, the husbands didn't have to understand the wives. They didn't have to consider the wives. They didn't have to think about the wives. They were of a sect that that wasn't a responsibility of theirs. But God was calling husbands, yes, you do. Because you serve God, you're under a different tier. But then he goes, live in an understanding way as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You better treat the wife that God has given you with respect, according to God, caring for, or there's going to be consequences, is really what he says. So to recap, and to kind of wrap this up, there's a picture on my wall, and it's a picture of Peter and John. It's a famous picture. I don't know the name of it. The, uh, they're headed towards the tomb. It's on the morning after Christ has, it's on Sunday, and Mary has come to the apostles, and she said, Jesus is gone. And you know the story in, in the Gospels where Peter and John get up, and they start running towards the tomb to see if it's true. And this artist depicts this picture of John's face and Peter's face so perfectly. You can see it. The sun is in front of them, so there's kind of like this hope. But behind them, it's dark. It's still morning. It's still dawn just coming up. And it's gloomy. And you know that there's just brokenness in the world. And the look on Peter's face is one of just confusion and fear and yet hope. Because Peter, up until the point of Christ's crucifixion, said, Jesus, you are the one. You are the hope. You're going to restore all things. We are going to rise. We're going to put down all of our enemies, and all is going to be good. And instead, Christ went to the cross, and Christ was killed. And so Peter is broken, and he's hopeless, and he doesn't understand. But the picture paints that they're going towards the tomb and there's light they're going towards the sun and there's light and there's hope and that's because the reality is peter gets to the tomb and he sees it's empty and he sees that christ is no longer in the grave but he's risen and then he comes to understand that suffering and brokenness in this world is temporary and God's plan isn't to overthrow earthly governments and to bring along peace and prosperity in every way in our lives, but that Christ has brought hope to a broken people. And this is the message that Peter and the other apostles are to take to the ends of the world and pour their life out in bitterness and cold and abuse so that the message of the gospel of deliverance of sins and eternal life may go out to the world. And now Peter also knows that it's in suffering that this message is proclaimed and spreads and God is exalted in it. He gets it. I pray that we would get it. 
we would look to the empty tomb. We would trust in the risen Savior. We would share in his sufferings that don't belittle God, but exalt God. And we would continue in whatever our circumstance to entrust ourselves to the living God and our risen Savior. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Father, I pray that you would take this message and you would recalibrate our minds and our hearts. For we live in this world and for each one of us, you have said they will have more days. Lord, many of us have been living in this world wondering why we suffer, wondering why our relationships, we have relationships with such difficult people, wondering why there's such injustice done to us, feeling like we have no voice or no hope to exalt you. But Heavenly Father, this word declares something else. It declares that each one of us has a voice and a way to exalt you, that the suffering is simply setting the stage for you to be proclaimed, that we serve one God and one master and one husband as Lord. We are giving our lives following the example of Christ and empowered by Christ, not left to our own strength, but by Christ who died on the cross who ransomed us and brought us home, who still now shepherds us, lead us into lives that exalt you, whether that's through valleys. We give you thanks for those saints, and there have been millions of saints that have gone before us in much worse circumstances and brokenness and hardship and abuse and injustice, but they have continued, they continue to entrust themselves, and now they dwell with you in heaven. Lord, help us to finish well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.